Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is not known exactly when the man referred to by history as Nat Turner was born, but it was most likely October 2nd, 1800, in Southampton County, Virginia, to a mother who was most likely born in Africa. History didn't record the details of his father. The only details ever recorded about enslaved people were ones that were considered useful for the owners. So his real last name is not known. But throughout life, Nat Turner was mostly known only as just Nat. It was only in death that he was widely referred to with the last name of Turner, the name of the man who had owned him and his mother. Useful for reference purposes, perhaps, but also a final reminder that within the context of the American system of chattel slavery, enslaved people were not allowed even basic authority over their own names. On the night of August 21st, 1831, in Southampton County, Virginia, 31-year-old Nat Turner and six other trusted and like-minded men would set out from their homes in the dark of night, armed only with weapons that would make no noise. Knives, hammers, axes. And they'd sneak into the homes of sleeping white people, whom they quietly murdered before moving on to the next property. They were indiscriminate in their destruction, killing every white man, woman, and child they encountered while recruiting ever more enslaved men to join their cause. Over the next two days, Nat Turner and his band of rebels would kill between 51 and 60 white people, and their ranks would grow from the original group of six to upwards of 70 enslaved people. It was the largest sustained slave rebellion to ever take place in America, and the subsequent white terror led to a razor-close vote between freeing Virginia's enslaved people for good or enacting laws that would just make life even harder. We know from history which decision they made, and it was that decision to make life even more miserable for enslaved people that rippled through history for the next 30 years until finally the wave crashed and the American Civil War began. That is the true legacy of the man known to his people as, quote, Prophet Nat. That the natural consequences of a system that would rob human beings of not only their freedom, but the freedom of their children in perpetuity, would eventually only be ended with literal rivers of blood. 
This is the story of Nat Turner's Rebellion. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Jenny. Welcome to Vile Virginia. uniquely Virginia story for Black History Month. And to me, there is nothing that better exemplifies the history of Virginia than the story of Nat Turner's rebellion. It encapsulates so much of the frustration and horror of the American system of chattel slavery, a system unique to America, while also perfectly illustrating Virginia's bizarre straddling of the line between the Deep South and the North. It's the place where Thomas Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal while simultaneously owning around 200 enslaved people at any time. His own grandson would lead the failed charge to end slavery in Virginia for good in 1832, which was basically the nail in the coffin for the system itself, but only after the American Civil War would end the lives of 620,000 soldiers and rearrange the economy and social structure of the entire South. If you're a regular listener, you can guess by now how my politics run, but I want to warn you in advance that in this episode, we're going to really double down on what I see as the absolute reality that America does not exist without slavery that slavery is the main driver of the entire American social structure. And lastly, that until we recognize and fully accept that as a fact, that America can never fulfill the promise of greatness that I do believe exists. Also though, this is a really great story, just a really American story, and I'm excited to share it with you. Nat Turner and his mother were owned by a man named Benjamin Turner on Turner's Southampton Plantation, until Nat was around 10 years old and Benjamin Turner died. At that point, Nat and his mother became the property of Benjamin's son, Samuel. Nat was a wildly intelligent boy, and he learned to read very young. He became obsessed with the Bible. In reality, the only book he had access to, but one whose stories of prophecy really spoke to him. From an early age, he was said to have spiritual visions, and elders would say that he could very accurately talk about things that had happened long before he was born. He was serious and quirky and said he heard voices from God, intentionally secluding himself from other people and more earthly pleasures, and instead fasting and praying regularly. This was during America's Second Great Awakening, time of religious fervor where many different religious sects found guidance and spiritual revelations from God and claimed to hear voices and have spiritual hallucinations. Nat Turner was very much a part of his time in that sense. Family and friends believed in him and thought he was intended for a greater purpose on this earth. 
As such, he quickly became a leader among the people on his and neighboring plantations, where he would lead them in religious lessons. They finally called him Prophet Nat. So let's talk about slavery a little bit to better paint the picture of the world that Nat Turner was born into. Between the years 1500 and 1820, the years covering early colony settlement and the American Revolution and its aftermath, a full 80% of people who set out to the Americas as a whole were enslaved Africans. Let me say that again, 80%. The transatlantic slave trade known as the Middle Passage was incredibly brutal. And an estimated 15% of those people who were stacked and chained in the holds of those ships died before they ever made it across the ocean. Those who did make it faced the punishing reality of a life of unpaid and unceasing labor until they died, and any children they might have would also have that life. As a middle-class white woman living in the year 2020, I'll never be able to adequately describe the terror of slavery and the generational impact it had on its descendants. So I want to recommend for further reading Tanahasi Coates' incredible novel, The Water Dancer. I was astounded by how that book went beyond a recitation of the practical and physical horrors of slavery to bring to life the devastating emotional impact of that institution. The daily degradation and loss of family and friends and personal history of babies taken from their mother's arms and disappeared into some distant and brutal unknown. You may be able to intellectualize why what Nat Turner did made a brutal sorts of sense, but if you read The Water Dancer, I think you'll be able to really feel it too. In 1822, when Nat was 22 years old, he successfully ran away from his owner. But after a month, he returned of his own accord and said that he'd heard voices telling him he needed to go back, that he was intended for a higher purpose. And so there Nat stayed, working on the plantation, with no ability to come and go as he pleased, no ability to own property or legally marry, all the while listening to the voices that would guide him as to what he should do next. In 1828, Nat Turner received what he would believe to be the first of those signs. While working in his owner's fields on May 12th of that year, Turner said later that he, quote, heard a loud noise in the heavens, and the spirit instantly appeared to me and said, the serpent was loosened, and Christ had laid down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men, and that I should take it on and fight against the serpent. For a time was fast approaching when the first should be last and the last should be first, end quote. Nat Turner took this to mean that God was telling him to lead his people from bondage. He had at last found his purpose. From that point on, Nat Turner would watch for signs from God, tell him how to organize and lead his people out of slavery. And over the years, his plans began to solidify. In February of 1831, an annual solar eclipse occurred in Virginia. Taking this to be a sign from God in which a black hand reached across the face of the sun, Nat Turner felt the time had finally come. He was convinced that God had given him the task of, quote, slaying my enemies with their own weapons, and said, I communicate the great work laid out for me to do to four in whom I had the greatest confidence. In 
Those whom he had told his plans to were his closest friends on his plantation. Four men, Henry, Hark, Nelson, and Sam. To tell anyone of such plans was incredibly risky. It cannot be overstated how the fear of word getting back to owners was itself a massive influence in keeping the notion of slave rebellions at bay. To be caught up in such a plot could mean not only physical retribution, things like cutting off hands and ears being only one type of punishment, but could also mean your family would be sold away from you and you'd never see them again. How could anyone ever take that risk? But Nat's confidant stuck with him, convinced by the wisdom of his plan and that God himself had told him to do it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The plan was to start only with their own plantation and to murder all white people they encountered, man, woman, and child, as they went from house to house, and to gather all of the enslaved people who lived there to add to their ranks. The idea was to make it so fast and so awful that it would have the power of many battles, as many battles was not what they had the number for. They had to make do with the few that they had. They felt it too risky to let others on other plantations know their intentions, and they didn't want to give people too much time to think about it for fear that they would be too afraid to proceed. In this manner, they'd keep going until they got to the town of Jerusalem, where they would then arm themselves with weapons from the armory, enabling them to more effectively continue their march freeing more and more plantations and homes. The enslaved black population in Virginia at the time was around 30%, so the numbers weren't terrible in terms of their ability to effectively stage an uprising, They just needed it to be enough of a surprise and to stay together as a large group for it to work. The rebellion was originally set for July 4th, Independence Day. But Nat Turner was ill, and so he waited. On August 7th, there was another solar eclipse. This one was different, though. The sun was bluish-green that day. I'm sure an undeniable sign to Nat Turner that the time was right. I find this detail to be particularly fascinating. The sun was most probably bluish-green that day because of debris that had traveled the continent after an eruption of Mount St. Helens in Washington State. What an incredible portent that must have been for someone waiting for instructions from God. On August 21st, 1831, Nat Turner and his loyal friends, Henry, Hark, Nelson, and Sam, were joined at the last minute by two more men, Jack and Will, whom they quickly learned were as devoted to their cause as they were. 
After a meal in the woods and hours of discussion, they set out around 2 a.m. to attack the first home, the one that belonged to the Travis family, Nat Turner's own master. Inside the Travis home, they axed to death Travis and his wife and young son. They then moved on to the next plantation. Gradually, their ranks grew from the original six to 15 to 40 to upwards of 60 men. They moved from house to house, murdering the white occupants and taking all weapons, ammunition, and horses. They then moved on to the next, but not before shedding the clothes they had worn in the fields and taking on the clothes of their former masters, all the better to represent their new status as free human beings. They notably spared the white women abuses that were not spared their own. There was no rape or mutilation. That was decided from the outset. Instead, they killed and moved on. The plan was to annihilate any white person they saw to invoke the highest fear until that became less necessary. And then it would only be those who posed them the greatest danger, the white men of the households. The goal, according to Nat Turner himself, was to, quote, spread terror and alarm among whites in the hopes they would be awakened to the brutality and horror inherent to the institution of slavery itself. In this way, they proceeded through Southampton for two days until it was time to make their way to Jerusalem for additional arms and supplies and money. Also, they rightly guessed that at this point, white leaders would be learning what was taking place and would send reinforcements from Richmond. This is where things fell apart for Nat Turner and his band. Their path would take them back past Nat Turner's home plantation where all this had started. Several of his party wanted to go alert those who were still there as to what was happening and add them to their ranks, but it was two miles away and Nat Turner was worried about the time they would lose. The clock ticked by as they discussed it and finally he did dispatch a party to the Travis plantation but the delay would prove deadly. The power of the rebellion lay in its united ranks, and when Wern finally made it to the white neighbors of those who were already slaughtered, white reinforcements on horseback quickly caught up to the now-splintered rebels. Gunfire was exchanged, and Nat Turner retreated to the woods with only a part of his band of rebels. They hid there overnight, and their reinforcements grew once more to around 40 people as they camped on a plantation owned by Major Ridley but an alarm was sounded in the night and the group once again scattered. And Nat Turner found himself alone in the same woods where his plan had begun just 48 hours earlier. If he had not paused, he could have made it to Jerusalem and gotten enough arms and supplies to head back to the dismal swamp to hide out indefinitely. But he didn't. The band was broken. Nat Turner was alone and left in his wake were the bodies of approximately 55 white people. It was now time for the full power of slave-owning Virginia to seek retribution. He waited in those woods for two days and two nights, hopeful that someone would join him, but no one did. So Nat Turner found himself a safe place to hide in the swamps, where he would remain for the next two months. During those two months... White Virginia, and in turn all of the South, would lose their collective minds. Nat Turner was exactly right when he wagered that his plan of rapid and brutal terror 
would it prove as impactful as large battles won. As word spread through Virginia and into the Deep South of white men, women, and children slaughtered in their beds in the dark of night, white slave owners would see imaginary plots everywhere they turned. Retaliation against the black population, both enslaved and free, was swift and brutal as people who weren't even involved in the plot were rounded up and slaughtered. With Nat Turner still in hiding, the idea that he was creeping through the night inciting revolution in their own backyards meant that terrified whites cracked down even more harshly on the enslaved populations that they kept. Rumor traveled faster than any immortal man realistically could. At one point, Turner's band was estimated at 800 armed men, and this, after the original few dozen, had already been scattered to the wind. Herein lies an important reality, that had the timing ever been exactly right, a slave insurrection might have actually worked. Because communication was difficult under the best of circumstances, and even though it would only take a handful of armed white men to quell an uprising, most white men would prove loath to leave their own homesteads for an organized fight, choosing instead to protect their own families and property. And how uneasily they all would have slept in their beds after Nat Turner and his rebels had made their stand. Because even if they could keep proper vigil during the day, who was there to protect them in the dark at night? when the perceived enemy was living so close. To imagine this unease is to imagine only a fraction of the terror that the enslaved population had and would live with for generations. Fifty-four enslaved men were rapidly executed for their part in the plot, while hundreds more who had nothing to do with it would pay the price as well, victims to a suspicious and frightened white population. A chilling reminder to others to not even think about insurrection came about with the beheading of enslaved people, whose heads were then placed on pikes lining the road. Near Cortland, Virginia, now the name of what was then Jerusalem, is a road named Blackhead Signpost Road for the number of heads that once lined it. It's still named that, too. Nat Turner himself would elude capture until October 30th, 1831, when a farmer discovered him hiding in a hole under a stack of old fence posts. He was captured alive and taken to jail, where for the next week, he would give a statement to a lawyer named Thomas Gray. Gray collected these statements into a pamphlet called The Confessions of Nat Turner, a controversial document that is suspected to have been embellished by Mr. Gray but is still thought to be a fairly accurate account of Nat Turner's thoughts about the rebellion he led. From Maryland to Louisiana, a reign of terror against the black population was ignited, and anyone deemed suspicious by their masters was shot or hanged. Maimings, mutilations, burnings, an already brutal system suddenly became even harsher as laws were enacted that took away what little freedoms the enslaved population had. While black freedmen hadn't legally been allowed to stay in the state of Virginia since 1806, the crackdown pushed out those who had managed to stay. Family units were forced apart even more regularly, and the companionship of enslaved blacks was deemed suspicious, with the law being passed that required a white pastor be present at any black religious service. 
This brutality only served to increase abolitionist fervor, as the institution was clearly more brutal than it had ever been. A debate in the Virginia General Assembly in February of 1832, just six months after Nat Turner and his rebels swept through 11 plantations in Southampton, murdering almost 60 people, led to a vigorous debate about whether slavery was worth it at all in Virginia. Western counties who didn't own many slaves compared to their eastern counterparts tended to be more open to emancipation as they thought their friends in the east had an unfair advantage and inappropriate power because their slaves counted towards representation in the state legislature. It was none other than Thomas Jefferson Randolph, grandson of our state's most celebrated and beloved hypocrite, who pushed hardest for emancipation, a measure that lost by a single vote. Of course, slavery didn't die that year. It would take several more decades before Abraham Lincoln would sign the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing, on paper at least, all of those humans who were legally kept in chains. And after the failures of Reconstruction and the 13th Amendment, it can be said that slavery never really died, it just changed its shape. For Nat Turner, though, the end was much clearer. Tried in Virginia court on November 5th, and hung six days later on November 11th, his body was skinned, body parts distributed as souvenirs, his head cut off, and the rest of his body rendered into grease. It's been interesting to read so many articles from so many different time periods as they describe the events of Nat Turner's rebellion. Oddly enough, the most sympathetic to his cause was written for the Atlantic Magazine in 1861 on the cusp of the Civil War. And its detail is fascinating. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's just a gorgeous read. And it should nicely end the lie that people were just totally cool and unconflicted about slavery back then. Decent people always knew slavery was wrong. But it's always illuminating to see how certain journalists and writers wrestle with how to describe the murders of the white people that took place during those two days in 1831. I personally don't really see the dilemma. Those white people were definitely murdered, that's not really in dispute. But they were also willing participants in an institution that did murder and much worse on a daily basis. It's not my place to justify anything. There is no justifying any murder of any innocent. But how innocent were so many of those people who ended up dead those nights? That's not for me to say either, it's just something to think about. I'm definitely not the final arbiter of justice in the world, I'm just a podcaster, an observer from another time. I just think that if you're torn about the rightness of any of this, you should ask yourself who you would kill to save the lives of yourself and your children and your children's children. The American system of slavery was a horrifying affront to humanity on a scale unseen anywhere else in the history of humans, and its repercussions are still felt today. Violence begets violence. It's less an argument of whether what Nat Turner did was quote-unquote right, and more a question of whether or not it was understandable. And to me, it is perfectly and completely understandable. That's it for this week, friends. Happy Black History Month. 
Stay safe out there. We'll see you next time. For a list of sources or additional information, please visit www.vileVirginia.com or visit our Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Six Semper Tyrannus, y'all.